Hello, sisters in Christ. It's Sandra Hega. I realize that most of you probably don't know who I am. My husband, Parker, and my one-year-old daughter, Lathia, started attending Black Knoll back in August of 2019. Actually, we had attended previously in 2015 when I was starting out at Duke Divinity. We're glad to be back at Black Knoll after having taken a bit of a sojourn that included moving to and fro from the West Coast. I hope to get to know more of you. Today's text is actually not one, but two Psalms, Psalms 42 and 43. Originally, these Psalms were likely a single continuous Psalm. They are linked thematically, but also by a shared refrain, a common cry from the psalmist who says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This week's psalms are psalms of lament. But first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and reflect on your word. We also give you thanks that you are not estranged from our sorrows, but know them intimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, please guide our time together. Please use the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth in a manner that pleases you both in spite of and even because of my human frailty. We seek your face, O God. Please come near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, ladies, election day is finally upon us. Can you believe it? Well, maybe you can. It has seemed, at least to me, a long time coming, especially in light of the extraordinary events of 2020. The pandemic, nationwide protests for racial justice, hurricanes, wildfires, and other natural disasters I'm sure I don't really need to recount these things for you, but in short, there is plenty to lament. But as I consider the turmoil of the past year, in the lead up to this election, there's a thought that's been running through my mind. This is the thought. Is it possible that we as a people, as a nation, are generally pretty optimistic, but simultaneously lacking in hope? Psalms of lament generally follow a pattern of lament, plea, and looking to the future with praise or thanksgiving. Today I want to focus on Psalm 42 and I want to do so in a sort of backwards kind of way. I want to reflect on this lament through the lens of hope. I want to take hope as our starting place. How is hope different from seeing the world through rose-colored glasses? I have to admit that when I initially read through this psalm and got to the words, hope in God, I imagined hearing something like a squeal from car tires coming to a halt and attempting to make a quick U-turn, or maybe even the painful screech of a barreling train attempting to come to an abrupt stop. Where did this declaration of hope come from? In verse 3, our psalmist cries out, My tears have been my food day and night. But they say to me all day long, where is your God? Then in verse 5, she says, hope in God? The historical context of the psalm is unknown to us. We know that it was given to the choir master of the sons of Korah, a Levitical order of priests that had a special role in temple singing. But we can't just assume that it was written by a Korahite. 
We simply do not know his or her identity. What we do know is that there's some obstacle that prevents our psalmist from visiting the temple. Perhaps she is sick or living too far away from Jerusalem, or maybe it is the direct consequence of the persecution she's suffering. She describes her enemies as taunting her relentlessly, saying, where is your God? So where does this imperative to hope emerge in our psalmist's dark night of the soul? In our everyday conversation, we use words like optimism and hope rather interchangeably as a belief that things will get better. They'll turn out all right in the end. However, in the context of our faith and in the scriptures, I believe there warrants a distinction. Optimism is, after all, that glass-half-full type of outlook. Let me say that I have no axe to grind against optimists. Many of my best friends are optimists, though in full disclosure, I am something of a pessimist, though I prefer the term realist. Indeed, we know that there are many benefits, including health benefits, to being an optimist. Not many of us want to be a pessimist. But what if the glass isn't half full or half empty? What if it's just a glass? What do we do when we are parched and there's nothing to drink? This is precisely the situation of our psalmist. She begins her lament by comparing herself to a deer panting for flowing streams. She's thirsty. She's parched for the presence of God. And so we might say this about hope. Hope and hope alone is the answer for the destitute and the forsaken. Too often, it seems like optimism is the prerogative of the privileged. Whether our glass is half full with wealth, influence, or just plain luck, these things offer us a buffer or even a safeguard against the worst kinds of suffering. Take the current pandemic as an example. Many of us have jobs that allow us to work from home. Many of us have the unearned advantage of a healthy immune system. Meanwhile, the coronavirus has disproportionately affected the aged and historically marginalized populations, especially Black Americans, in terms of both health outcomes and economic tolls. When you have nothing, all you have is hope. In verse 1, the Hebrew word that our text translates as pants suggests the idea of inclining one's head in a certain direction or physically straining forward. It reminds me of what Paul says to the Philippians. But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Hope is this act of straining forward to the thing or the one we desire. This gets me to another observation about hope. Hope is not a disposition, it's a discipline. Whether it's through nature or early nurture, our optimistic or pessimistic disposition emerges at an early age. You can ask your parents. For those of us who would like to be more optimistic, it can feel like it's hard-coded in our DNA. The good news about hope is that it can be cultivated in us. The bad news is that we must cultivate it. Paul also exhorts his listeners in Philippi to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not that we could earn our salvation, that would be very anti-Paul, 
But we need to work the muscles of obedience against the friction of sin and suffering so that we can stand fast in our ultimate hope, hope for salvation. And indeed, our psalmist demonstrates how to exercise one of these muscles in the discipline of hope. In verse 4, she remembers how she led a great crowd to the temple in rambunctious worship during a time of a festival. She clings to this memory as evidence that she will praise God again in his holy place. Here we see her exercising the muscle of memory in the discipline of hope. And in this way, we might claim that hope engages the past as much as the future. Optimism, on the other hand, doesn't need to recollect the past. In fact, it's often better to ignore or even attempt to rewrite it. However, hope engages our memory of God's faithfulness and presence with us. Back in the spring of this year, my family went through a time of job loss due to the coronavirus. Of course, that's happening to a lot of people right now. But when it happens to you, it can come as a complete shock. When the initial disbelief eventually gave way to anxiety and grief, I tried to remember all the ways that the Lord has provided for us, especially during unemployment and our early marriage, my time in grad school, and our move to and fro from the West Coast. I told myself that this time I needed to do things differently. And as best as I could, I chose to do the things that could foster hope. Namely, when worrisome thoughts surfaced, I would remind myself of God's track record. By God's grace, things turned around for us quickly, which we had no reason to expect. And while there were certainly challenges during that period, it was one of the most emotionally grounded I've ever felt during a time of such uncertainty. I like how our study guide points out that in the Bible, the notion of remembering, as well as forgetting, implies action. It is not just a passive recollection of events. Indeed, when Paul says that he is forgetting the past, what he means is that he's leaving behind his old ways of life to pursue new life unhindered and devoted to Christ. In verse 6 of Psalm 42, we overhear the psalmist's self-reflection. She says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Here, remembering is not so much a discipline of memory, but of mindfulness. Jordan and Hermon represent the farthest outer limits of Israel. You can't get farther from the temple in Jerusalem than this and still remain in the country. It's helpful to remember that for the Jews, the temple was the singular place on earth where the real and true presence of God dwelt. The distance that the psalmist senses between herself and God is therefore a literal physical separation in addition to a spiritual one. In Christ, it does not matter where we worship since we worship in spirit and in truth. Still, I'm sure that many of us at this time of COVID may feel like we can certainly identify. We too are struggling in the absence of in-person worship and fellowship. We too long for the special presence of God that we encounter in the shared bread and cup. Without the routine of going to church every week, I can personally attest to the challenge of turning my thoughts to God on my couch instead of a pew, and isolation instead of community. In verse 7, the psalmist's vivid imagery comes to a climax. She cries out, Deep calls the deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All of your waves and your billows have gone over me. 
In an ironic and tragic sort of way, the psalmist's plea for flowing streams is met with the overpowering surge of the raging seas. This does not sound like the language of hope. Rather, it is the well-known vernacular of death in its ancient Far Eastern context. Our psalmist feels overwhelmed to the point of death, or maybe even wishing to die. Still, I will argue that there is another lesson here about hope. Hope tells the truth. Hope speaks candidly about the state of our world, as well as the condition of our souls. Unlike optimism, hope sugarcoats nothing. Ellen Davis tells us that the Psalms of Lament function like our First Amendment right to speak frankly, even brutally so, to God about how we feel. Moreover, hope finds no happy home in denial because hope often encourages us to interrogate our own souls. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? I think that too often we want hope to be the feeling that motivates us into action, to get us out of bed in the morning. But that's not what scripture tells us. Once again, I'll turn to Paul, this time writing to the Romans. He contends that we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Paul is suggesting, I think, that hope is actually the outcome or even the reward for those who persevere in the face of opposition. This journey towards hope has to start somewhere, and I think it starts here. It begins with lament. What I'm really trying to say is that lament is part of the discipline of hope. I'll let you decide if I'm right about the state of our country in the lead up to this election. Maybe I'm just a pessimist after all, but I want to end on a very personal note. I want to share with you my own personal experience of trying to find hope in a difficult situation. In May of 2019, I gave birth to my daughter. She's my first child. Overall, the pregnancy went well, though I did have to undergo a procedure I had never heard of. It's called aversion. My daughter was breached at 39 weeks, and so the doctor had to come and actually turn the baby around from the outside. I was absolutely determined to have a vaginal delivery, and once my daughter was in the proper position, there was no reason to expect that labor wouldn't go smoothly. Well, it didn't. I know that many of us moms have our war stories. My story, like so many women, ended with an emergency C-section, but thankfully, a very healthy child. But the next day, when we were safely out of the woods, I couldn't stop thinking about what I had just experienced. The nurses assured me that I would eventually forget and before too long, they'd see me back in the hospital again with another baby. As the days progressed and sleep became a fantasy, the hormones of pregnancy dropped while the hormones of breastfeeding began to surge, I knew that I was in trouble. The nurse that discharged me suggested that I take a lavender scented bubble bath when I got home to calm my anxiety. Bless her heart, if only it had been that simple. 
I wish I were a poet like our psalmist. I wish I had the words described to you the pure hell I experienced over the next days, weeks, and months. There are a lot of misconceptions out there about postpartum depression. First and foremost, that it's all about depression. There are actually a number of flavors, if you will, of perinatal mood disorders, including anxiety, bipolar, PTSD, and even psychosis, which is very rare, but gets the most media attention since it's often associated with maternal violence. Anxiety and PTSD were my afflictions. What made matters worse was that after I left the hospital, I had a number of health scares. I was screened for postpartum preeclampsia, a possible blood clot in my leg, and then again in my lung. I was diagnosed, though wrongly, with pneumonia. Fortunately, I sought treatment immediately. I had experienced one other prior bout with panic anxiety in my early 20s. I knew I couldn't just snap out of it. But unfortunately, the perinatal psychiatrist referred to me by my doctor could not see me for several weeks after my daughter was born. So I bounced around to various doctors' offices and emergency rooms. Now that the baby was here, I was nobody's patient. I was nobody's charge. I actually spent two consecutive days at UNC trying to get admittance into their inpatient clinic for perinatal mood disorders. After initially being promised a bed, I was ultimately denied it because they only have five beds. I was told that UNC has the only inpatient psychiatric clinic of this kind in the country that specifically treats women with debilitating postpartum mood disorders. Let me repeat, we have five beds in this country for all the moms in America. Needless to say, I was devastated when I left the hospital and honestly rather traumatized. I didn't spend a day alone with my daughter until she was about three months old. My husband only had his two weeks of vacation and no paid leave. So we had to call on numerous friends and family members, many of whom drove or flew hundreds of miles to be my arms when I couldn't take care of my daughter. It was humbling and often scary not knowing if we could find support. At that time, we also didn't have a strong connection to a church, but we did have the incredible support of a Blacknell small group that we had remained connected to despite no longer attending church on Sunday morning. Honestly, it was this support that brought us back to Blacknell even though we lived down in Apex. I think the one thing that has been difficult for me to explain to someone who has never experienced clinical anxiety is that the feelings don't go away even if you know that the fear is irrational or you manage to resolve the fears that triggered the panic in the first place. Many days I would wake up without any particular worry on my mind and have to rush to the bathroom to vomit because of nauseous anxiety. By six weeks, I had lost all my pregnancy weight. When you're nervous all the time, it's hard to eat. What does it mean for your tears to become food Day and night, as our psalmist bemoans, I think I have an idea. Furthermore, sometimes I would have to excuse myself so I could lay in my bed, sometimes for hours, to fend off or rather surrender to the waves of paralyzing panic. Sometimes I would actually imagine literal waves of ocean passing over me to keep my mind from conjuring up thoughts that might excite my unleashed anxiety. They may not have been my exact words, but many times my thoughts echoed the psalmist's question, Why are you downcast, O my soul? 
And why are you disquieted within me? I really didn't know the answer. During that time, I prayed fervently. I read my Bible regularly and often. My prayer over and over again was, God, please use this struggle to make me a better servant. I believe I really meant it. I still mean it. But on the other end of the conversation was radio silence. Finally, one night, after a particularly excruciating day, I cried out in desperation, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Hearing myself say this now feels a little overdramatic, but at the time, I meant it with every bone, every cell in my body. And then immediately, I felt guilt. Had I finally succumbed to doubt? Had I just been drugging myself with a big dose of self-righteousness? It then occurred to me, though it should have been obvious, that these words are the words of Jesus. And before that, they were the words of David from Psalm 22. Many theologians, as well as everyday believers, have struggled to make sense of Christ's cry of dereliction on the cross. Was it an admission of doubt? Some try to soften the blow by pointing out that Psalm 22 ends on a note of confident praise. I don't claim to know what Jesus was really thinking, What I do know is that I'm grateful that he said it. In his admission of alienation, we receive permission to address our estrangement from God honestly and without fear of offense. Here, the brokenhearted, the dispossessed, the stigmatized find an invitation to join in the fellowship of suffering with our God in Jesus Christ. That said, I don't want to leave you with the impression that I have it all figured out. Although thankfully I am mostly recovered, still I have a hard time understanding why God remains so aloof. Maybe I should just give up and say, God, surely it's me, not you. But that seems dishonest. It seems like a shortcut designed to keep my ideas about God pleasantly intact. There's no strain. I guess I'm still hoping for hope. In this pain, I have discovered an irony about pain itself. On the one hand, we desperately don't want anyone to see our pain, namely our weakness. Mental illness is still so incredibly stigmatized in our country and perhaps even more so in the church. However, on the other hand, we want to be seen in our pain. We want others to acknowledge and validate us in the midst of our desperate circumstances. As our psalmist says, we want to see God in large part because we want to be seen. I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to share with you my reflection and my story. I hope that it can be encouragement to others. If you do know someone who is struggling with postpartum depression or anxiety, I hope that you'll contact me. I hope you'll let me know if there's any way that I can help. Have a great day. I hope that the Lord blesses you this week.